a good song. You know, I think of those songs too. They do preach. They preach better than preachers sometimes. So we say those words, and maybe that's not a lived reality in our life right now, but it's an invitation. It is a vision of the kind of person that I can become as Christ does his work to redeem. Um, Glad you are here with us this morning. If you are visiting, you are most welcome. If you are a repeat visitor, keep repeating. We want you here, and we're glad to have you here. Uh, There are a group of four people that uh, worshiped in a church in Tennessee this morning, and uh, they're a couple hours later there. They're in a car now heading our way. So we have good things to look forward to. You know, we come to church from a lot of different places in the sense that uh, what was going on before this, what was going on in your day this uh, yesterday, last week, some of us are just kind of skipping in here. Some of us are, you know, we feel the weight of life. I had a buddy of mine, a missionary, who said, Calvin, you know, he would just, he was very animated. I feel like, I feel like I'm fighting the fires of hell with the water gun. And it comes to us that way sometimes, where we feel like all the fires of hell are just bearing down on us. And yet here we are. The ways that we come to the presence of the Lord, I hope, as a community where we are learning to love each other And look to the Holy Spirit to depend on Him, to learn the lessons that He wants to teach us through songs, through sharing a memorial, through giving, sometimes through a sermon or a preacher or around a sermon or a preacher, through the relationships we have with each other. Jesus Christ is faithful, and he will get us where we need to go. So you remember last week where we were, uh, the service of Jesus, washing the feet of his disciples, and just the beauty of that act. And I said that that's kind of, that event is an interpretive lens to look at the rest of the activities going on at the Last Supper and this discourse that Jesus is giving uh, in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. But we're finishing chapter 13 today, and we start where we left off, where Jesus has knowledge of things. And today we're looking at his knowledge of his betrayal by Judas Iscariot and knowledge of Peter's upcoming denial. Jesus knows these things. Jesus has been revealing things all along. It says early in John that he knows what is in the hearts of humanity. He reads our hearts. He knows our situations. He sees where we are at. I'm not referring to all of you. This is in that dialogue where he said, some are clean, but not all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. In the ancient Near Eastern cultures and even modern cultures with a real ethos of hospitality, where hospitality is 
important. It was part of that. It was that way in the African culture I was a part of. The kids would go hungry sometimes in order to feed the guest who comes into the house. Uh, to take bread from someone, to share a meal with someone, is a true act of intimacy. That's why in Africa I ate things that I would never eat here because of the relationship that I was building. It was so important. And thus to betray a person with whom you've had table fellowship, it is a particularly heinous act. And this uh, phrase, to lift a heel against someone, that means you turn away and you walk away from them. Your heels are now facing them. And Judas leaves with the intent of selling out Jesus. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So he goes and he's telling us this about Judas, but then all of a sudden he interjects this, this little statement here. It's this little theological bomb that Jesus drops. Just as anyone who accepts Jesus accepts God the Father himself, now this is extended to the emissaries of Jesus. When you accept the messenger of Jesus, you find that you've accepted Jesus. And when you accept Jesus, you accept God. So you see that extension is now put out onto the disciples of Jesus. And I I wish I was a better uh, theologian, but I don't fully understand thematically how this verse fits into the context of Jesus' betrayal. But this is in the context of the Last Supper where Jesus is undertaking a certain kind of preparation with the disciples, is he not? He's preparing them for the things that he knows are going to be coming. His betrayal, the the disciples abandoning him, Peter denying uh, denying him. He is preparing them for even the kind of death that he will be dying, when it says the Son of Man must be lifted up, and they'll see the full implications of that unfold. So Jesus is even anticipating in this verse the future mission of his disciples. A mission where fellowship with the Christ and with God is possible because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit, who's the best preacher in the room and the most lively, joyful personality among us who carries us in our burdens who lifts us up in our pain and our brokenness. The beautiful presence among us revealed in our fellowship together. But after Jesus says this, there must have been uh, some kind of pause. You know, I imagine all of the eyes of the disciples were fixed on him. And uh, they're kind of wondering what what is going to be coming next. And what he says shocks them. He was troubled in spirit and he testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. So he'd been telling them about this all along, but 
now they can see that Jesus is upset. They see something in his countenance, something in his face that just gives them pause. And then they hear that someone among themselves, in their own group, is going to betray and sell out. And they all wonder, who is he talking about? Could it be me? And I wonder what Judas felt in that moment. Was it hatred for Jesus? Was it shame? Was there some kind of fear that his wicked plans are going to come to light, that he will be found out and exposed to the other disciples? Well, Peter, he wants to know more about this, and so he gestures to a disciple, John, who is intimately close to Jesus, to discreetly ask Jesus, what what do you mean by this? Who is it? One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is the first time we hear the designation of the author of this gospel, historically attributed to John the Apostle. He is referred to as the disciple who Jesus loves. But I think part of the hidden music of John is we are all invited to become this disciple who Jesus loves. And we all feel that way about Jesus in this relationship that we have with him. Well, this disciple was reclining next to him, and Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's the one whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Satan came in. First, let me say a word about this beloved disciple. The way that they shared a meal, the way that they would do that, laying on their sides on the floor. I guess I can get down and show you. So you're around a center table here, and the person who is next or in line with you, there would be one here. So when the beloved disciple is asking Jesus, he's literally leaning back and putting his head on Jesus' breast or his bosom. And so it's a very intimate setting, this meal that they were sharing. You know, this is a, 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 a physical closeness, a closeness of presence. But in the music of John, we know that this physical proximity, that there's more going on. There is true intimacy between these men. <coughs> Sometimes I think a lot of the problems that we face in this world, uh, this is just a little aside, I think we have a lot of problems because we have not learned well as a culture, as men, how to show intimacy with each other. We all have this certain narrative, don't cry, don't be this way. We bottle up, we stuff these emotions, they're just, this is the way you be a man. We don't know how to lean on each other's breast. How to be close to one another and intimate at that level. Sometimes we maybe have stepped back because we don't want to be misunderstood and there's 
things the way things are interpreted sexually or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about communion of hearts. And how do we as brothers in Christ express that to each other? That's just a challenge for you, my brothers and my fathers, my sons. All of us, we need to learn as men and spiritual leaders in our family how to lean on each other and rely on each other more and more. So that's my little side caveat with all this. So this is a very intimate setting with the beloved disciple leaning against Jesus' breast and then uh, asks him this question. And it's interesting the way that Jesus chooses to uh, identify his betrayer about this method. It would not be uncommon for the host of a meal, in this context, Jesus is the host of this meal, to pick out a choice morsel and then give it to the honored guest. This happens in all kinds of cultures, even today, Bedouin cultures, the cultures I was a part of, where an honored, the, the host of the banquet would give a choice morsel to the honored guest. And I think that's what's going on here. And it's an act of love where Jesus is extending himself one last time in love toward Judas. It's not an accident either that he gives him what? Bread. We've read the discourse in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Jesus one more time trying to give himself to Judas. And this gesture of affection, it precipitates the final surrender of Judas to the power of darkness. Judas received the choice morsel that Jesus handed him, but he did not receive the love with which it was intended to be received. And instead of breaking his heart in that moment, Jesus brought that whole situation, everything was, he brought it to that moment. And instead of breaking his heart so that he would confess his plans and cry out for mercy and forgiveness, instead it solidifies Judas' will and hatred toward Jesus to the point that now Satan has entered the situation and takes that farther than they wanted it to go. You know, I had trouble with this kind of act of... uh, Uh, honoring a guest as a missionary. My setting was a little different in Tanzania. When I was first there, they would do that. They would give the visitors the choice morsel. And uh, when I I was first there, I didn't know the language, of course, but uh, I had another co-worker, uh, Eric Guild, in case he's ever listening to this online. Um, He decided to tell them that, you know, the part that Calvin really likes to eat He likes to eat the eyeballs. And so for all of these meals, I didn't know this conversation. I could not figure out why. I knew it was important to eat what was put in front of me. Because it's all they're honoring me by doing this. They're trying to do a good thing. I could not for the life of me figure out until sometime later. Oh, he, when I would learn the language, he told us you like that. They kept giving me eyeballs and handing them to me to eat. Nobody likes that. <laughs> That's a, another whole aside. So, Anyway, with this act, Jesus is in fact trying to honor Judas and do something beautiful for him. But Judas's will is now broken. It's now bent on doing evil, the hatred for Jesus, the spurning of his love, 
that's now solidified. And it's at places like that where we have surrendered our will or our will is bent on evil. It's places like that where the devil and his emissaries will take us in and pull us and push us along farther than we want to go. And uh, I've seen it in so many situations. We use different language for that here in the States with our understanding of psychology and uh, modern counseling techniques. They had a word for it in Tanzania too. They would call it uh, possession, upepo, that dirty spirit that has come in, that you've allowed in, that takes you further than you want to go to do evil and to do harm to those around you. So Jesus says, what you're about to do, go and do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus had said this. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. So they don't know this whole, the only one who's heard this is the disciple who Jesus loves, that this is the one and knows that it's Judas. But, you know, I would think, well, why wouldn't he speak up and say something? Why wouldn't he expose them to the other this all happens so quick. I think while the beloved disciple is still processing all of this, this event has taken place and Judas has gone out. The disciples don't understand what Jesus is doing or the significance of the choice morsel of bread. And although the disciple whom Jesus loves knows that Jesus has identified Judas, he's not able to spit it out quickly enough. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, taken the bread from the hand of Jesus, he went out and it was night. Remember that night in John is also metaphorical. Judas is now fully entering into evil. The time of the light of the world is now coming to an end. Humanity, with the help of the devil, is going to have their way with Jesus Christ, and they're going to do their worst to him. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once, meaning right now. The glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ are now inseparably intertwined. The glory of Jesus is the glory of God, and the glory of God is the glory of Jesus. And this glory is tied in some way to the fate of all humanity. And that's part of the wonder of the incarnation, that God leaves glory to come enter into our filth to reveal his glory and take us back to glory. It's a mystery. It's, there's a mystery to this. It's a wonder. Remember in chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then a couple chapters after this in John 17, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. 
I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. Jesus came from glory before he became flesh. And Jesus, after his flesh is crucified, returns to glory. Back to the presence of the Father. But remember last week in John 13, we said that that was an interpretive lens, the washing of his disciples' feet. Jesus, the freest human being who ever walked the face of the earth, who had the glory of God entered into our human mess, knows that he's going to return to God. How does he choose to use his freedom? He chooses to use his freedom to serve us. That's the beauty of our Savior. 13.3 says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power and that He had come from God and He was returning to God. Jesus knew all of this. So God serves us by entering fully into humanity, into our human existence, into our stinky feet issues, I said last week. And He takes upon Himself the mantle of a servant doing the most menial and disgusting of jobs. Jesus becomes the suffering servant of all people through all history. And this incarnation reveals to us the glory of God. Because the glorification of the incarnate word does not take place in a spectacular display of fireworks or light or bells or whistles. But in the flesh and blood and filth and messiness of human wickedness and brokenness. In the hidden music of John, the greatest display of the glory of God in all human history. Comes down to a single moment in time, Jesus' shame that he bore on the cross. The worst we could throw at him. My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. Another part of Jesus' preparation for his disciples is informing them of the impending separation that's going to take place. He is going to be leaving. Think about this these men have left their businesses, they've left their families to literally follow Jesus' footsteps day after day after day and their separation from Jesus, it would be something that would cause a whole lot of anxiety, I would think. Their rabbi, their teacher, who they've discovered as Messiah. But Jesus, in this moment, he's letting them know all of this is part of the plan. Twice already, Jesus has told the Jews that he was departing and they would seek him and, and they would prove unable to find him in 7, 33, and 34, and then chapter 8, verse 21. But unlike the Jewish leaders who did not accept Jesus, who will thus die in their sins, the separation of Jesus with his disciples now is only temporary. We'll soon read in John chapter 14, 1 through 3, where Jesus is in fact going, we will follow, and he's going to prepare a place for us. 
So I just want to point this out in today's text. Jesus, with all of these horrible circumstances, he's leaving us a trail of crumbs to follow, a bread trail crumb for his disciples that keeps them together enough until they're ready for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. These are things Jesus' disciples are incapable of understanding in the moment. But all of these predictions will grow the disciples' faith in the future. These things will help them understand that God has a plan and that his plans are trustworthy. Jesus predicts the kind of death he will suffer. He predicts his betrayal by one of his inner circle. He predicts his separation from all the disciples who are about to scatter. He predicts Peter's denial. I think that God still grows our faith this way. We don't understand what God is doing in the moment. How could we? The circumstances are horrible. And in the darkness of our current circumstances, sometimes we feel like we've been abandoned. Sometimes we feel like we are helpless and powerless. That God doesn't care. How could he? But later on, God helps us understand how he was at work in all of the broken pieces and the broken situations of our life. And when we reflect back later, we discover, wait, God's wisdom was at work. Wait, this must have been his tender mercy at work. Wait, this is God's steadfast love. And when we discover these things in our own lives, it builds our faith. And we trust Him a little bit more with the future circumstances that come our way. The future hardships that we yet don't realize and don't know about. The future joys. And in this context, He says these words, A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if... You love one another. This is Jesus' last will and testament to his disciples. And remember that this love was just exemplified in Jesus' act of washing the disciples' feet. And also notice the quality of love that we are to have toward one another. Not shallow, not fickle, not the kind of love of the world. Not just putting up with someone here who really annoys us, quite frankly. But loving them the same way that Jesus loves them. Loving them the same way that Jesus loves me. So why is this what makes us known as Jesus' disciples? Why is it the quality of our love that reveals us as disciples of Jesus Christ. I think, uh, just for my two cents, I think it has to do with how hard it is to really love people this way. It is really hard to love people with the kind of love that Jesus loves us. You ever think about that? That quality, 
that kind of openness and self-sacrifice and vulnerability with other people. That's what he's calling us to in this church. That's what he's inviting us to embrace. And in fact, it's hard in one sense, but also we were made for it. And when we don't live that kind of life, there's a hole and there's a loneliness that comes with that. We were made for love, to give love and receive love, to be in love with the Lord. And it's not just some personal relationship with Jesus that's removed from all the other relationships in this room. This is the training ground God gives us to prove our love real. And when we get that right, none of us is going to have to worry about evangelism anymore. We all try to come up with these programs. What are we going to do to draw people in? We don't need to do this. If we, if we do this with the website, if we do this with Facebook, if we run these events, this is all the next... So many Christians out there looking for the silver bullet that's suddenly going to make it all work. The silver bullet that makes it all work is to love each other the way Jesus loves us. If we do that, evangelism is not going to be our problem. People are going to pour into this building. People are going to want to be around us. People are going to want to share life with us. And we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. It's not going to be hard work. It's going to be our joy. Because we were created to be known by each other at this level. To share each other's joys. To share each other's burdens. To pray for each other. To give to each other. To love each other cry with each other. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? In the end, he does, of course. But I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. You will disown me three times. I think Peter was sincere in his desire, don't you? It just comes across in the text. See, Peter believed he was going to follow Jesus all the way to the cross. He believed it in his head. Sometimes the distance between our head and our heart, the distance between what we know and the real actions that we undertake, there's a great distance there. But Jesus knows something about Peter that Peter doesn't know about himself. Just like Jesus knows things about you and I, Jesus knows things about Calvin that Calvin doesn't know about himself. And this is why spiritual formation in Christ is so important for us. 
We think we are going to do all of these great and wonderful things for God. We do. We, we want, we are legitimate in our desire to do good to the, in the lives of people around us, to serve, to be loved to them. And we wonder why these things are defeated in our lives again and again and again. We are, sinc- we are sincere in the moment. But the attacks of the enemy don't come in these moments. Temptations that you face, they're not coming to you right now as I'm preaching. Well, hopefully, maybe for some of you. They come to you late at night. They come to you when you're isolated and alone. They come to you in those places where no one can really see what's going on. And so we need Jesus to come and he, we need Jesus to teach us about ourselves. This implies prayer. This implies the study of Scripture. This implies learning how to love each other better. This also implies making mistakes, learning lessons, and growing. And over time, Jesus will reveal to us the things we don't even know about ourselves. And then he will help us move past these challenges so that we can become the kind of disciples who are known for their love. These are heavy things going on now at the close of Jesus' ministry. The Sanhedrin has placed a death warrant on Jesus. They want him dead. They want him gone. They want him out of here. They want to murder him. Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' own, had gone out to betray him. And even Simon Peter, who wants to follow Jesus so desperately, has just been told that he's going to deny him three times. Sometimes you and I as well. We feel like everywhere we look, things are falling apart around us. More and more people seem to oppose Jesus in our culture here in Eugene. They hate Christians and they hate the church. People are distracted and they're absorbed. They don't care what's going on here. They don't listen to the voice that is spoken in these places. We're so absorbed in our own selfish interests that we don't have time for Jesus or each other or or all the beautiful things that Jesus wants to do in our lives to make us into a showpiece of his goodness. And even me, even you, we want, I I really sincerely believe, probably 99% of us in this room, we legitimately want to do good things for Jesus. We legitimately want to follow Jesus with all of our lives. But like Peter, we get tripped up on our own brokenness and all the things that we can't see about ourselves even. And we end up in sin and we end up denying Jesus by our actions. We have brokenness in our marriages, brokenness in our relationships, impossible situations with our health, hidden sin we refuse to confess, loneliness, depression, Some among us are mentally unstable. Things seem to be falling apart around us. And just like these disciples, we need Jesus to come to us and to give us a word of encouragement and hope. Do not let your hearts be troubled. 
I couldn't get past these words this week. It was about midweek when I was putting the sermon together. These words came to me. And something unlocked in my spirit. And I cried like a man is not supposed to cry. It unlocks something. Because I'm troubled in my heart a lot of times. As a minister of this church, I want goodness in all of your lives. I'm troubled about the situations you're facing. I'm troubled about the brokenness that exists among us. Those things trouble me. The pain of losing loved ones. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. For were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. Think about these circumstances where Jesus is saying this. In the intimacy of the upper room, Jesus knows what's about to happen. Jesus, the one who the Sanhedrin wants to murder. Jesus, the one who Judas is about to betray. Jesus, the one who Peter will deny. Jesus, the one who will be abandoned by all of his followers. Jesus, the one who will be killed by crucifixion. And knowing all of these things, what is Jesus' concern? It's the comfort of his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me, because while there's life, there's hope. Jesus' concern is for the disciples because he knows that that's where the most progress can be made. He's already completely secure in his life with the Father, knowing that God is trustworthy in all things. He doesn't worry about that. He worries about you and I. In the sense that he wants us to know that all these things we're carrying. He says, you do not have to let your hearts be troubled. That's a hard pill for us to swallow. While there is life, there is hope. Hope for us to give Jesus the troubles of our hearts. Hope for us to learn moment by moment how to trust God with our real day-to-day lives. Some people think Christianity is boring. I don't get that. It's challenging. It's dynamic. It's always changing. You feel people's pain. You see the glory of God. Our life in Christ is an adventure. But we undertake it with a kind of courage and boldness that this world doesn't know. We wander into these broken situations. We're a calm presence somehow. People wonder at that. How are you not losing it? And even in some small way, it gets into us. God is going to have the last word. So I don't have to let my heart be troubled. 
One last story and I'll be done. I keep putting these uh, old pictures of handsome fellows up there on the screen for you. Uh, Alfred Nobel, who was a Swedish inventor. And uh, he was an arms manufacturer. This guy invented something that we know today called dynamite. He was the inventor of it. Well, he made his fortune with arm manufacturer, arms manufacturing and in the oil business as well. And he accumulated great wealth. And he had several brothers who were quite well known. Well, one of his brothers in 1888, Ludwig, died. And some newspapers around mixed up that they thought it was Alfred who had died. And so he's reading in these French newspapers his own obituary and what the world had said about him. The obituary, the summary of his life, it said, Le marchand de la mort est mort. The merchant of death is dead. And it went on to say, Dr. Alfred Noble, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. And when he read this, the legacy of his life, the wealth he had accumulated in that moment, it meant nothing to him. While there is breath, there is hope. And so he decided to put the bulk of his funds into a trust that would invest and accumulate interest and would give out prizes. And so the Nobel Peace Prize was initiated, given to the person or society that renders the greatest service to the cause of international fraternity, in suppression or reduction of standing armies, or the establishment or furtherance of peace congresses. He is, he's not remembered a lot of times that he was the, the king of dynamite, the merchant of death. But he is remembered for the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, God can take our brokenness and turn it into something beautiful. Peter and the disciple who Jesus loved, they made mistakes, big mistakes. Judas did too. Judas ran from the love of Jesus. These other two were able to be redeemed. Perhaps like Peter or Alfred Nobel, you find yourself in a place where if you were looking at the obituary of your life, what would it say? And you don't like the truth about yourself that you see written there. Because we ourselves or we know people who are writing a sad and shameful legacy with the way they are using or destroying their lives. But by God's grace, perhaps a situation will come up that gets us 
allows us the opportunity to see the obituary of our own life and to see the ways that, yes, I myself am a merchant of death. But before you die, who knows how many breaths you have left. But while you are here, you are alive, there is hope. How are you going to rewrite your own obituary? Sometimes it's good for us to ask morbid questions like this. How are we going to rewrite the story of our lives? As we will see soon, Peter's denial of Jesus does in fact come true. But Jesus doesn't leave Peter there forever. The one who sees all of our hurts, who sees every tear we cry, his desire is to come into your life and to lift up your head and to give you a vision of the person you can become through his power and his grace. He wants that more badly than you want that for yourself. And he will make a way for you to do that. And so I don't know where you are this morning or how this message strikes you, if at all. But if you want the prayers of this church, if you want to put on the Lord in baptism, whatever way we can serve you as a congregation, we want to do that because we want to be a community of disciples who are known for our love. Tell us how we can help you as we stand and sing together.